0: Today is Easter. Today is the day we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the day that we celebrate the empty tomb and what it means for believers, right? It's Sunday. We celebrate Sunday. But um, Sunday doesn't happen unless Friday happens. Like, we don't celebrate the resurrection unless we first uh, really dive into the death of Jesus. And I feel like so often we, we talk about how Jesus died on a cross. We talk about how He rose again. And we so often don't really talk a lot about what happened in between. And so today, we're going to get to Sunday, we're going to get to the resurrection, but we're going to rewind to really start back with Friday. We've been in this kind of series where we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we've been doing this for the past couple of weeks. We're going to continue on for the next several weeks talking about first the death, and the burial, the resurrection. Um, so, We've So far, we've talked about the Jewish leaders. It was actually the Jewish leaders that really wanted to have Jesus killed, which is crazy. It's like religious people wanted to kill Jesus, this guy who made these bold claims. But also, he healed people. He he was kind to people. He showed this amazing love. And it was the religious leaders that wanted to kill him. And they um, plotted to kill him. They gave Judas, one of Jesus' followers, 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He, he betrays him, and uh, Jesus ultimately ends up in front of these religious leaders who are seeking to kill him, so much so that they go to tremendous efforts to have him be killed. They, they commit bribery and battery and kidnapping and perjury and forgery and defamation and assault and even attempted murder. They seek to stone Jesus on multiple occasions. And so what is it that has these Jewish leaders going after this guy? And he made these bold claims, it was why. He said things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This Jesus said things like, there's no way to get to God unless you come through me. He says, I'm the way, I'm the life, I'm the truth. And he made these crazy bold claims, and the Jewish leaders didn't believe him. They rejected him, and they wanted him killed. They thought he was a threat. And so they do all of this different stuff. And one of the things that they do, kind of ultimately that leads to Jesus being killed, is they conspire to commit murder, and they take him to Pilate. Pilate was the state leader. He was the governor of Judea. They bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate tries him. And, uh, but before that, he's not really sure what to do with him. He sends him to a guy named Herod. Herod thinks he's a waste of time and sends him back. So that's where we get to the story. And then um, Pilate has decided that, that this Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die, even though the, the Jewish leaders want him killed. And so he comes up with this great idea. He's going to put him up against Barabbas. Every year at Passover, he would release one criminal. And so he's about to release a criminal. He decides, let's put him up against the worst criminal. So Barabbas or Jesus, which one do people want to be released? And they choose Barabbas. And so you see this innocent man switching places with this guilty man. You see um, someone, like I said, who's innocent being guilty and so being considered guilty. And he's put on the cross. Jesus is on the cross next to two criminals. And last week we talked about that both of them revile him. But as Josh preached last week, he said that one of them had a real encounter with the real Jesus that led to a real transformation. And that thief on the cross, he, sa- he doesn't ask, Jesus, will you save me? Jesus, will you forgive me? He just says, Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus says, not only will I remember you, he says, you will be with me today in paradise. Again, bold claims that Jesus has the way to get to paradise and He tells that to the thief on the cross. And then not long after, Luke 23, 46 says this, that Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So we have this Jesus who is dead on the cross. And it's Friday. When this happens, the sky goes dark. Day turns to night. When this happens, there's an earthquake, and the Bible says that in in the Jewish temple, the curtain, there was this big, thick curtain that the curtain was torn from the top all the way to the bottom. It also has what I think is one of the craziest things in the entire Bible, and there's a lot of crazy things in the Bible if you really read through it, but what happens is there's this earthquake, Jesus has died, and graves crack open, and several dead people come back to life and go walk around the city. And you're left like, what? What has happened? Could this really be true? Is this real? And so today, we're going to talk about, though, that gap between Jesus' death on the cross and between him walking out of that tomb. We're going to do that by looking at two different people. We're going to really talk about a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and another guy named Nicodemus. If you have a Bible, you can flip open to John 19. And we're going to read John 19, verses 38 through chapter 20, verse 10. So again, John chapter 19, starting in verse 38, this is what the Bible says. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices as it was burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved is John. John is referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, kind of prideful, but he says... Um, the one whom Jesus loved said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the temple. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and then John throws in a little bit more pride. But the other disciple outran Peter. Like, let me pause for a second. John is writing this, and he's like, oh, by the way, I beat Peter to the cr- tomb. You know, like, sh- So John outruns Peter to the tomb, and then in verse it says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, again, he's got to throw it in again, reached the tomb first, he saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Father God, your word tells us that we should ask and we will be given, that we should seek and we will find, that we should knock and the door will be opened. So God, I ask you that my words would be yours. God, we seek not to just know the story of the crucifixion of the resurrection better, but I, but we seek to truly encounter you, the real Jesus, and that you will t- to make real transformation. God, we knock on your door, praying that today we would get closer to you. We pray this in the awesome and precious name of Jesus. Amen. So it says, after these things, after Jesus dies on the cross, there, Jesus is dead on the cross, his body's just sitting there, and then we meet a guy by the name of Joseph Arimathea, and the first thing that we learn is that he's a secret follower of the Jews because he fears or he's a secret follower of Jesus because he fears the Jews. But the thing is, is if you know much about the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. And and all of these books tell a little bit about this story. And so what we can kind of do is not only look at John that we just read, but we're going to kind of look into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to kind of layer them together to get an even better picture of who this Joseph of Arimathea is. So he's, he's, like I said, a secret follower of Jesus. He fear, uh, fears the Jews, but he's a good and righteous man is what Luke 23 tells us. So he's this guy. He's a good dude, right? But he's following Jesus, but he's kind of scared of the Jews, so he's kind of secretly following Jesus. But then it tells us in Mark 15 that he's looking for the kingdom of God. And we've talked about this before, but the the nation of Israel had become this nation. They'd had their own land given to them by God, and they had this king, and it was King Saul, then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom gets split, and over time they get taken over, and then taken over, and then taken over, and you just have this long period of time where they are a nation, but they are ruled by other people, and they don't like that. And so what happens is you have people who are wanting to take the nation back. You have people who are wearing red hats that say, uh, make Israel great again. You have that going on. That's not a political thing. It's just supposed to be funny. It wasn't very funny, so I apologize. <laughs> <coughs> but you have people who are wanting the nation to be great, but they're wanting the nation to be great because they want the nation to be great. But in the midst of this, we talk about Joseph of Arimathea, who he wants the kingdom to be great because he wants God to be great. And there's a big difference between wanting your nation to be great and wanting your God to be great. And as we meet this Joseph of Arimathea, we meet this man who wants God to be great. So it reminds me of when we first meet Jesus, when he's born, and he's taken to the temple um, to be, uh, um, I'm losing my word, circumcised. Woo. Okay, so Jesus goes to the temple to be circumcised and He, um, they go in and they meet this guy by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is this old man who he says, now that I've seen this Jesus, I'm ready to die. He said, my eyes have seen salvation. It reminds me of Anna on that same day, this woman who has not left the temple for years. She's this widow and she sees Jesus and she says that she has been waiting on the redemption of Israel. That's what Joseph of Arimathea is all about. He is about seeing God's kingdom come. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, hallowed be the name, your kingdom come. That's who Joseph of Arimathea is. He wants God's kingdom to come. He's alert. He's ready. He's awake. He's dressed. He's ready for the kingdom of God. It kind of makes me think of Andrew, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, right? When, when Andrew meets Jesus, what does he do? He immediately runs to his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, we have found the Messiah. They were looking, they were paying attention, they were watching because they believed that this king was going to come. So that's who Joseph of Arimathea is. It also tells us in Mark 15, 43, that he's a respected member of the council, Now, if you were with us when we talked about the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, um, there's the high priest, who's the big dog, and then there's the council, or the Sanhedrin, um, the chief priests, sometimes they're called, the the elders. And so you have this group, and and what our text tells us is that Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member of the council. Which just gets crazy because it was the council that decided that Jesus should be killed. In fact, what we see in... um, Mark 15, 64, that the council comes together and they all condemn Jesus. What we see in Luke 22 is the assembly comes together and they all believe that Jesus is speaking blasphemy. John eleven forty seven 47 tells us that the council decided that it is better for one man to die than for an entire nation to die. And Joseph of Arimathea, this guy who goes and gets the body of Jesus and takes him and buries him, he's a member of that council. And we're left kind of like, what's going on here? But then... We also read in Luke 23 that he had not consented to their decision or their action. So you have this whole council, this 70-member council, along with the high priest, 71 people who are adamant that this Jesus needs to die. But Joseph of Arimathea, who's this respected member of the council, does not vote. So we don't know really why he votes. It's, it's possible that he um, wasn't present. It's possible that he was present, but he just didn't vote. It's possible that the the Jews realized that this Joseph of Arimathea is sympathetic toward Jesus, and so we're not going to invite him to the meeting so we can vote without him. Maybe it's possible that he didn't go on purpose because he realized he was more and more disagreeing with these Jewish leaders. Uh, What I like to believe happened is that he was the designated survivor, and that he couldn't go because he had to stay back He's kind of Kiefer Sutherland in this situation. If you anybody knows what I'm talking about, good. If not, I apologize. But he doesn't consent to their decision of action. So we have this respected member, this prominent member, and up to this point, he's secretly following Jesus, and he's fearful of the Jews. But something happens. We don't know when it happens, but something happens. And instead of secretly following Jesus, he makes one of the boldest decisions I can possibly imagine someone making. He goes from secretly following Jesus, being a prominent member of the council, to boldly going to the man who had Jesus killed to say, Hey, can I have his body? It's this crazy thing. We don't know when something changes in his heart and his mind, but something has to have changed in his heart and his mind. It's not just, you're a good guy. You're, you know, you're a good and righteous guy, so you're going to go take this dead carpenter who claimed to be God, you're going to take him and you're going to go bury him? It doesn't really make any sense. There has to be something more to it. There's something has to have changed in his mind and in his heart. Maybe it was when he saw the Jewish leaders going after Jesus. Maybe it was when he saw Pilate have this decision that he was innocent, but yet didn't have a backbone and was willing to have him killed even though he was innocent. Maybe it was... When he saw Jesus being beat. Maybe it was when he saw the crowd turn on him. We don't don't know. Maybe it was when all of the disciples took off and left Jesus, and Jesus is there on the cross by himself with no one around him. We don't know, but it seems to me that something had to have happened in Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe it was when he saw the spikes driven into Jesus' hands. Maybe it was when he heard Jesus' final words. Maybe it was when he saw him die. We don't know, but something has to have happened in Joseph Arimathea's life to go from being a secret follower of Jesus to boldly going to Pilate saying, can I have his body? Well, it's the worst possible time to step up and to begin to follow Jesus not in secret. It's the worst possible time to do this bold, crazy thing, right? It doesn't look like this is the start of a kingdom. It looks like this is the end of a ministry. And yet... Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, Hey, can I have the body? He's no longer on the fence. He's no longer secretly following Jesus. He has come out boldly to follow Jesus. He asks for the body, and Pilate says, Yes. And as I read this and as I think through this, I have to stop and ask myself, Why would he do this? Why would Joseph of Arimathea do this? Think about this. He's a a prominent member of the council, he's like one of the big dogs. And if he does this, I can't imagine that any of those other 70 people, that high priest, anybody will allow him to continue to be in that prominent position. He's really, if you think about it, he's losing everything when he goes to Pilate and asks for the body. Pilate says yes and gives him his body. So that's what it it appears, at least. I want you to imagine with me that you are Joseph of Arimathea. You walk to the cross You get to the foot of the cross, and you've seen it from a distance. You've seen the blood. You've seen all of it from a distance, but now you get to the base of the cross. And you look up, and you see a bloody, beaten, pierced, lifeless body. If you read Matthew 27, it says that the body is given to him. If you read Mark 15, it says that that Pilate granted the corpse of Jesus to him. John 19 says that he was given permission to take the body away. And all of it makes it kind of sound a little bit cleaner than I think it was. It makes it sound like, oh, you want Jesus' body? Okay, here you go. Take it. But if you look closer into Mark 15, Mark 15, 46, it says this, and Joseph of Arimathea taking him down. If you look at Luke 23, 53, it says, And he, Joseph, took it down. Joseph of Arimathea climbs the cross. And he begins the process of trying to take the spikes out of the wood. Now, I want you to imagine with me this, just the top beam of the the cross that they would use would typically be about a 100-pound beam of wood. This is not just like a little two-by-four. This is like a big, thick beam. And Joseph of Arimathea has climbed the cross seeking to get the spikes out of Jesus' hands and out of Jesus' heels. I can't imagine how hard it would be to get the spike out of the wood, let alone out of flesh, let alone out of bone. That's what we're told that happens. From that point, Joseph of Arimathea lowers the body to the ground. He clearly doesn't just remove the spikes and Jesus' body just fall, but he lowers Jesus' body to the ground. Um, People talk about dead weight. Not to get too graphic into this, but about four years ago, our beloved dog um, named Mocha, she died. She um, was a sweet, sweet dog, had horrible gas, but she was a great dog. Added to the sermon, so... But Muggsy, was, or Mugsy—that's our new dog. Mocha died in our house, and I had to take the body out of the house. I don't know if anybody has handled dead weight. She was a big girl lab. She's 85 pounds. Now the other thing is, it was the first time I had been around someone or something dying, and I was freaking out. And Sarah's like, "Honey, she's just dying." And Mocha died, and I had to carry her out of our home. And 85 pounds doesn't sound like a lot, but when it is dead weight, it is very heavy. I threw her over my shoulder, and one of the things I didn't really know, I, knew, I think I knew here but didn't really know, that when someone or something dies, that whatever is inside of them comes out. So carrying her out of the house... Got excrement all over me. When you think about Joseph of Arimathea climbing the cross to get Jesus' body down, he would have gotten unimaginably dirty. The blood that would have come all over him, excrement, all over him. That Jesus had been pierced, remember, he was pierced for our iniquities, the the fluid would have leaked all over Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph would have been filthy. Let me ask you a question. Would you have done it? As I kept thinking about this story this whole week, I kept thinking, would I have done what Joseph of Arimathea had done? Not to mention this, not only would he have gotten filthy, but he would have become unclean. In the Bible, in Leviticus, Leviticus um, uh, talks about that you cannot touch a dead body. And so, what happens is, if in this culture you wanted to be ceremonial clean, and if, and if you touched a dead body, you were immediately unclean. And if you were unclean, you'd have to wash. You'd have to wash on the first day. You'd have to wash on the third day. It was like this big process of washing. But not only that, remember, this is Passover. What Passover is, in a way, it is them celebrating that God had led them into their new land. It was kind of like their 4th of July, if you will. It also was like the first of the year, so it was kind of their New Year's Day. And it was this huge feast. It was kind of like Thanksgiving. So you have this wonderful holiday where you would eat even more than what we eat typically for each of those holidays, you would, you'd have this huge holiday, and it was so important to be a part of this, but when he touched Jesus' dead body, he would have instantly become unclean and unable to partake in Passover. Remember, um, it, when you become unclean and you cannot partake in Passover, you now have to celebrate Passover the following month. So he eliminates his possibility of being at Passover celebrating the Passover. He's become unclean. Now, this is such a big deal. If you remember a couple chapters ago, when the Jews go to Pilate to have Pilate be killed, it says that they won't go into his headquarters. And the reason that the Jewish leaders won't go into his headquarters is because in the law, you cannot associate with, you cannot have a meal with a non-Jew. And so the Jewish leaders were so adamant about not becoming unclean that they wouldn't even go in and have a meal with Pilate. They wouldn't even go in and be associated with him. But yet here we have Joseph of Arimathea, a member of that same council, who is becoming unclean by touching a dead body. Who's becoming filthy with blood and fluid and excrement. He has climbed the cross. He has taken Jesus' body down. And it says in our text that they bury Jesus according to the custom of the Jews. And so what that means is you would get this shroud. It was called a, like a linen shroud. And it was like this, this wrap. You'd almost kind of mummy them. You'd wrap them up, You put a cover over their eyes, over their head. It was like this cover, this swaddle, right? Well, they don't have one. And so we read in Mark 15 that Joseph buys a linen shroud. So you have this man who does all that we just said in addition to spending his own money to buy this shroud. The next step is to clean the body. They would clean the body, they would wrap it, but when they wrapped the body with the shroud, they would use spices to kind of help the stink. At this point in time, we meet a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up. The, our text tells us that he's, he's a Pharisee, that he's probably, very possibly, part of the council as well. And this guy named Nicodemus shows up, and it's not the first time we've met Nicodemus. It was the first time we had met Joseph of Arimathea, but we've met Nicodemus before. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he starts talking to him, and he's kind of saying, hey, look, Jesus, like, I know you're a good teacher, because no one can do all the cool stuff that you do if they're not. And that's when Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Remember that part? That conversation continues on, and Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like That conversation with Nicodemus is when Jesus says the most quoted Bible verse, John 3.16. Well, we also see Nicodemus again in John chapter 7, and he's defending Jesus before the Jews. And yet now, here he comes with myrrh and aloes. There was this time several years ago, um, Sarah and I bought a bunch of air fresheners for our house, and we plugged them all in, and our house smelled really great for like 30 seconds, and then we instantly had the worst headache we've ever had in our entire life. And we ran through the house, got all of them, put them in plastic bags, double, triple, Ziploc bags. We put them in our car, and the next day we were going to take them back. We got in the car the next day, and it was as if we had poured it all over the car. Like it was, we, we couldn't get the smell out. And it reminds me of that. Can you imagine this Nicodemus is coming bringing these spices and 75 to 100 pounds of these spices? Number one, just the carrying it would not be that easy. But also, think of the smell that followed him. Think of the smell that was all over him. If you're thinking 75 to 100 pounds of spices seems kind of like a lot. It was. 75 to 100 pounds of spices is actually how much you would use if you were burying a king. So when Nicodemus comes bringing the myrrh and the aloes, he's announcing Jesus as king. They clean his body. They cover him, wrap him with the shroud. They fill it with spices. And there Nicodemus, along with Joseph, are ready to bury Jesus. Ready to announce him as king and bury him. And it says in Luke 23 that they give him a tomb in which no one had ever laid. A text we read, John 19, it says they placed him um, near where he was crucified in a tomb that was in a garden. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has been in a garden. Just hours before, Jesus was in a garden praying, Lord, take this cup from me. I I don't really want to do this unless it's your will. And yet now, because Jesus obeyed in that garden, now he's... Dead body is laid in this garden. But if you stop there, you miss one of the craziest parts. Matthew 27 tells us that that they buried Jesus. They put Jesus in a tomb that was Joseph of Arimathea's very own tomb. A tomb in which he had cut in the rock himself. So Joseph of Arimathea is a rich guy, right? And when you're rich, you need to have the nice burial spot so people knew that you were rich. And so he had this really nice spot. He picked it out. It was nice. He went in there with a chisel. I don't know how you do this, but you chisel it out and you make this beautiful, beautiful tomb. Joseph of Arimathea would have had to have spent many, many hours, days, on his back, on his knees, chiseling through this. Would have been nothing uh, to have been there in a tremendous amount of time. Would have been way more than trying to get out of Alcatraz. He's chiseling. And they need, a, they need a place to bury this Jesus. So, Joseph of Arimathea gives him his very own tomb. I have no idea how much a tomb would have cost, but... The amount of hours that he would have put into it, let alone it being this place of the rich, would have had to have been of tremendous value. And he places Jesus in it. And by doing it fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that this king, this Jesus, this suffering servant would be buried in a rich man's tomb. So they put Jesus' body into this tomb and they roll the stone cover the tomb would have been pitch black. That tomb would have been filled with darkness. The Jews are concerned that Jesus will appear to rise again because the disciples might steal his body. They remembered that Jesus had said that he would rise, and so they say, go to Pilate, and they say, hey, Pilate, look, this is going to be a bigger deal if, they, if the disciples come steal his body and pretend like he rose from the dead. This is going to be a huge, big deal, so you've got to send some guards. And so Pilate agrees, and he sends a group of guards to go guard the tomb. In that culture, you also would take a seal, and you would kind of seal across this tomb. So there would have been this big seal, this Roman seal, that showed, like, this tomb is sealed, it's done, and it, boom, big old seal. And they would do that for a couple reasons, but one of the reasons is to protect the body of Jesus from being stolen. So, the tomb rolls shut, the tomb is sealed, and it is the end of a very long Friday. I imagine myself as Joseph and Nicodemus going home, probably exhausted, filled with tremendous amounts of sorrow, filthy, you would have the look of death on you, blood and fluid and excrement. You would look horrible. You'd have the smell of death on you from having opened up the spices and rubbed the spices in the shroud. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go home with the look of death on them, with the smell of death on them. They both have spent their own money, they both have spent their own time, they've spent their own effort. Joseph have even given Jesus his very own tomb. I imagine them that night struggling with the emotions of what they had seen, of what they had heard, of what they had smelled. I imagine them trying to get clean and feeling like you just can't get clean. I imagine them struggling with the questions of their future. Did they lose their position on the Sanhedrin by doing what they had done? Would you think that they would really be able to continue their life as it was after this point? And as Friday turns to Saturday, I don't know if they fell asleep or not. But as I read all of this, I'm overwhelmed and amazed by Joseph of Arimathea and by Nicodemus. And I get to this point where I ask myself, would I have done any of this? And I ask you, would you have done any of this? Like, if you really put together all that they did, they they go to Pilate, the man who has Jesus killed. They go to him without fear of the Jews. They go from being, like, scared and being in secret and now they're boldly going before him. They're, they're risking their future. They're climbing the cross. They're removing Jesus' body from the cross. They're spending their own money to buy a shroud. They're taking his lifeless body and carrying it. They're, they're giving the work of it their own hands. They're placing him in a rock. They're willing to get dirty. They're willing to become unclean. They're willing to wash his wounds and clean his body. They're willing to prepare him for death. They're willing to cover him with spices. They're willing to announce him as king. Joseph of Arimathea is willing to give him his very own tomb. And again, I ask myself, would I have done any of this? I ask you, would you have been willing to do any of this? I ask myself, why did Joseph do this? Why did Nicodemus do this? And as Saturday turns to Sunday, very early while it's still dark, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and she sees something. The tomb's been rolled away. The stone's been rolled away, excuse me. She immediately thinks somebody stole his body. Her first thought, somebody had to have stolen the body. She runs, as we read, to tell Peter and to tell John, someone has stolen the body, and both of them run with John getting there first. They too see something. They see that the stone has been rolled away, and Peter goes into the tomb, and he sees something. He sees that the linen was just laying there. He sees the face cloth nice and neat folded and put away. John comes into the tomb, and he believes. Why did Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do what they did? Was it because they were great people? I don't think that's enough. Why did they do it? I think it's because they believed. They believed what would happen. Because the thing is, is our actions come from our beliefs. And so I think that they believed something. They didn't just, they weren't just good and righteous men. They weren't just prominent, respected members of the council. I think that the reason why Joseph of Arimathea, the reason why Nicodemus do all that they do is because they believed I think that they believed they were willing to go to Pilate on Jesus' behalf because they believed that Jesus went to God on their behalf. I believe that the reason why Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went boldly to follow Jesus is because they believed that Jesus boldly allowed them to follow him. I think the reason why they did this is more willing to risk their future is because they believed that Jesus was their future. I think that the reason why they did this, the reason why they were willing to be scorned in the future is because they believed that Jesus was scourged for their past. Why would they climb the cross and take the body of Jesus down, I think it's because they believed that he climbed up the hill of Calvary to raise them up. Why would they spend money to buy the shroud and to buy the spices because they believed that Jesus spilled his blood to buy them? Why would Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus be willing to carry his body? I think it's because they believed that Jesus came to carry them. Why would they give them the work of their hands because they believed that Jesus gave the blood of his body? Why were they willing to get dirty? I think it's because they believed that Jesus got dirty when he saved them. Why would Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus be willing to become unclean is because they believed that there was someone who would make them clean again. I think when we read this, we see a beautiful picture of believing, of faith. I think the reason why Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would wash his wounds is because they believed that it was Jesus who would wash them whiter than snow. That it was Jesus who would remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Why would they prepare his body for death? I think the reason they would prepare his body for death is because they believed that Jesus came to prepare them to live. Why would they wrap him in a shroud? I think it's because they believed that it was Jesus who would unwrap them of their sin. Why would they wrap him in the shroud? I think it's because they realized that it was Jesus who came to wrap his love around them. And that's what he was doing on the cross. Why would they bury him in such a way to announce him as king? I think it's because they believed that Jesus came to announce them as sons. The tomb is sealed by the Romans to protect Jesus, and yet Jesus puts his spirit in us as a seal to protect us. Joseph gives his very own tomb, but I can't help but wonder if it's because he believed that Jesus was only going to borrow it. As I read through this, I I get so fired up about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And what can happen in me is I can think, man, I wish I could be like them. I wish I would have done that. Like, "Why, man, I don't think I would have done that. I want to be like them. But then it's almost as if I hear Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saying, you don't want that. There's somebody way better. And it's Jesus. He's the reason why we did what we did. Don't look to us, look to Jesus. The thing is, I think that John believed, I think Peter believed, I think Joseph believed, I think Nicodemus believed, and their actions came directly from their belief. And so I ask you, what do you really believe about Jesus? Like for real, not like what what do you say you believe, like what do you actually really believe about Jesus? I ask myself, what do I really actually believe about Jesus? What do I believe about an empty tomb? Like, you can, you can research, you can study history, like, there was an empty tomb. There was. And so the question comes in is, what do we believe about that empty tomb? And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that really there's about four things that you can come up with. One, there really was never an empty tomb. It's just some wonderful little story that people put together so that we could read it. Maybe that's what you believe. Maybe you believe that Jesus didn't actually really die. Maybe he swooned, as they call it. He was placed in the tomb, and he was kind of in a coma. Maybe they gave him some medicine so he would pretend like he died, and then they put him in the tomb, and then he was nursed back to health. Uh, I guess you could believe it, but, but I would say that if you received the punishment that he would have received, just the flogging, there's no way three days later he comes walking out of that tomb and looks anything like a majestic Savior, he probably looks like a pitiful sick man. Maybe that's what you really believe, is that he Maybe he really didn't die. Maybe you believe that the body had to have been stolen. Maybe it was the disciples that came and stole the body. But if you study up on what happens, John will die of old age. Judas obviously had already killed himself. But the other ten disciples will die for the faith. Would any of them... Die for a lie. Would all ten of them die for a lie? What about maybe you think that the Jews might have stole his body? Well, at any point in time, if the Jews would have stole the body, they could have said, "Hey guys, stop being crazy because look, here he is. He's dead." So you could think that none of it really happened. It's just a story. He didn't actually die. His body wasn't stolen or he really rose from the dead? What do you believe? What do I believe? Scripture would tell us that as Saturday night turned to Sunday morning that instantly his heart began to beat. Instantly brain waves started moving. Remember that darkness in that tomb? Tomb filled with total darkness the light of the world would have lit that thing up. Took off his grave clothes, folded them up. I find that odd. Folded them up, set them down, the stone was rolled away, and the dead man walked out. That's what the Bible would tell us. But what is it that you believe? What is it that I believe? The reason why I think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did what they did, I think it's because they believed and what would happen. What do we believe about what did happen? If you know anything about a guy by the name of Josh McDowell, he's a a fairly famous Christian author, pastor. Uh, He was an agnostic, didn't believe anything about God, didn't, uh, thought Christianity was worthless. And he had a friend who was a Christian that challenged him to intellectually examine the claims of Christianity. He did. He spent quite a bit of time doing it. And he came to this, and he's quoted as saying this, I came to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was either the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever hoisted upon the minds of men, or the most fantastic fact of history. He came to the conclusion there's really only two options. It's just some prank. Ashton Kutcher's going to jump out and say, Pranked, you know, gotcha or it was real and it happened. He got to a point that he believed that it was true. He gave his life to Jesus. There's another guy, a guy by the name of Lee Strobel, who wrote the book The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith and The Case for the Case and The Case for the Case's Case. He wrote all these books about the case. But Lee Strobel, he was an attorney, like a lawyer, but a journalist. And he, um, his wife started going to church and she became a Christian. He saw all this change in her life and he was kind of awestruck by it, but also thought she was stupid. Like, why would you go to church and this whole Christian thing? It's weird. And so what he does is he decides to prove Christianity wrong. He's going to use his journalist and his attorney type skills and he starts researching like crazy and over a year goes by as he's studying, trying to prove it wrong so he can show his wife and say, see, look, you're a fool. He gets to a point where he says, it would have taken me more faith to believe that it didn't happen than faith to believe that it did happen. He gave his life to the Lord. Why did Joseph of Arimathea, why did Nicodemus do all that they did? I think it's because they believed what would happen. When I think about my life, what do I really believe about that empty tomb? And I ask you, what do you believe about that empty tomb? Let's pray. Father God, um, it is so easy to doubt. It is so easy to question, did this really happen? Did it happen like this? And why would they do these things and What does this really mean? And God, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that you'd open up our hearts. And even if the decision that we made is that we believe that this is all just a story, even if what we actually believe is that really Jesus didn't die, really he didn't rise, if that's really what we believe, I pray that we would be honest and truthful about that belief. But God, I pray that if we believe that that tomb was empty because the light of the world got up and walked out of that tomb, I pray that every aspect of our lives would show that that's what we believe. That our lives would look like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus because we cannot help but live out what we believe. And what we believe is that the empty tomb was because the dude got up and walked out. God, I confess that so often I say that I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And God, as next week, as we come back together, not to say it in a harsh way, but there'll be people who are here simply for Easter, but as we come back together next week and we begin to talk about doubt, I pray that you will use it powerfully for us as a church. And God, Ultimately, what my deepest prayer for today is. Is that you will help us to see what that empty tomb really means. Not only for history, but for our own lives. That empty tomb means that we can be forgiven of no matter what we have done. That empty tomb means that our lives can be profoundly different. That empty tomb means that Jesus is alive. Lord, I know in my heart I say I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And for all of us, help us to see what that empty tomb means. In Jesus' name, amen.